Hey, we're Crownlands. You're listening to The Hook Rocks with Jay Scott. How's everyone doing? Welcome to summer. We're about a week in to the heat, the sweat, the humidity. Well, depending on where you are, it's humid or dry, but it's hot all over the damn place. And we need to go to the beach. We need to have water hoses on us when we're standing outside. It's so hot in Chicago that you stand still and it's humid. It's or you stand still and, it's, and you sweat. It's just crazy. Like you're not even moving and you're just sweating. So it's just yucky outside. But anyway, welcome back to the Hook Rocks podcast, the ultimate rock community podcast. I'm your host, Jay Scott, taking you on another adventure, another escape in rock and roll music. Thanks for the great feedback for the latest shows like the George Lynch episode, the Bay Area Bands um, and why the Bay Area is so important. The Dead Romantic, new uh, new music spotlight there, was very uh, very well received. And the episode with Skylab's tapes, Skylab tapes that just aired on Saturday, uh, has just been tremendous. Uh, the reaction and the feedback. Uh, basically, it's an education on dynamic sound and the difference between vinyl and CD compression ratios. Loud loudness wars. If you've ever heard these terms and you ever tilt your head crooked like Lassie did in the TV show, like you are, it's like a foreign language someone's speaking. Check out this episode because Rob Skylab Tapes is just tremendous at presenting it and really giving it to you in layman's terms so you understand 
what the differences are with compression and why if a song has too or why an album has too many songs on one side of a vinyl, it's not going to sound good. We also get into modern day stereo systems, which are pretty much audio systems now, and how to start from scratch and what to look for and how to build it. So enjoy that. I enjoyed having it. I know we're going to have Rob on again to do some more stuff about the sound aspect, the absorption of the sound, of how it penetrates our ears and what's what's good sound quality and what's not. I always find that stuff fascinating. So look for that stuff in the future. And, of course, also look for the new Charlie Starr interview with Blackberry Smoke. They've got a new album, You Hear Georgia. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the network of music podcast. Enjoy the podcast with Vinny Apice and Carmen Apice. Carmen's going to be on the show here shortly. Uh, they do a great podcast with Ron Onesti. I think it's called Hanging and Banging. Mistress Carrie out in Boston, my guys at Shout It Out Loudcast, Tom and Zeus, do a great, great KISS podcast. They just had Chris Jericho on, ranking, it's kind of off topic with KISS. They ranked the Poison album, Look What the Cat Dragged In, and it was a lot of fun, so check that out. Cobras and Fire, Rock and Comedy, and so many others. Martin Popoff, The Rock Historian, there's so many others on the platform. It's a great place to check out new podcasts, new music-related podcasts. Again, PantheonPodcast.com. You can follow them on Twitter at Pantheon Pods. Great to be a part of that family. You can hear all the old and the new Hook Rocks podcast episodes. Please subscribe to us wherever you podcast, wherever you listen. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. And coming soon, we will be on the Instagram. So look forward to that. I'd like to welcome in our next guest. He is a three-time guest. We've had a blast with him discussing... 80s rock and why it died as we know it, which was a great episode as well received by all of you. We did the Van Halen debut versus Appetite for Destruction on which one's better. Of course, Van Halen 1 is. I know Appetite, you have your fans, but let's be real. Van Halen 1 is a way better album. Anyway, you can follow him at My Rock and Roll Heaven. He does a great show um, on the Boom Radio platform. And you can follow him on Twitter at Rock These Tweets. All the way from Canada, all the way from the Nort, we welcome back Chris Preston. What's going on? How are you? Hey, Jay. Um, I'm sitting up here as well. It may be the Great White North, but I'm sitting up here as well in the midst of a heat wave, too. So. You are standing, sweating, standing still. I am sweating, sitting <laughs> right now. It's hot, but I'm doing well. Um, you know, things are starting to open up up here finally. Not a lot of live shows coming back just yet, but there's stuff happening in the fall. So I'm happy. Things are looking good, and I'm happy to be back on with you. Always a pleasure to be on your show and chatting rock and roll with you. And uh, I'm really looking forward to our topic for this episode. Yes, absolutely. It's a great topic. Before we get into it, I just got one important question for you. In this heat wave, yes, sir. how do you keep the Labats cold? <laughs> well, you know what? I don't keep it cold because I don't drink Labats. <laughs> is that like is that like just a dumb American thing to say to a Canadian about Labats? Is there better beer in Canada? Yes. Yes, there is much better beer than in Canada, yes. What is yep. the what is I, your favorite Canadian beer. 
Well, you know what? I actually, you know, now as, you know, being a grown up and old, I, I don't drink as much beer as I used to, but I do in this weather enjoy an ice cold and it's not a Canadian beer and you're going to probably be shocked, but I enjoy nothing more than an ice cold Corona actually with a lime wedge in there. But if you're asking me about Canadian beers, there is a lot of local craft beers that I enjoy. So I like to support the local craft breweries. And I could go on and name a whole bunch, but that's another episode entirely. You know, I know I know Corona always gets the the accolades of the the beer from Mexico from down south. But I have to tell you, Negra Medello is the place to be for Mexican beer. Yes, very good. The Agreed. Du- the dark the dark Negro Medello, not the uh, Medello light. Oh, the do- oh, okay, gotcha. The dark. Ooh, that is good. That's one of my favorite beers, actually. Okay, that'll go on my list to try. So try that. That's a fantastic beer. I highly recommend it. Maybe that could be our yeah. first sponsor. Who knows? Yeah, um, yeah let's get them. <laughs> I would totally do it. Anyway, um, here's what we're talking about today. So. I just had Rick Allen on, and we were kind of talking about this before we had Rick on, but it kind of gave me the push to have this conversation, and it's one that I've always found to be fascinating, and it involves the band Def Leppard, obviously, because I just had Rick Allen on, and it involves their evolution as a band, as musicians, as artists. This band came out of Sheffield, England in the late 70s. They were formed in 1977. Basically teenagers, young kids, you know, these, these were not seasoned veterans as they are now, or, you know, a lot of bands are as they break, you know, with their debut album. These were kids and even on their debut album on through the night, I think there were, there were two or three of them were still 19 years old or not even 20 yet. Um, This is a band that was part of the new wave of British heavy metal movement. And I know when you say Def Leppard was part of (laughs) that movement, you get a lot of pushback from, I don't want to say Def Leppard fans, but just the rock and roll snobs, the metal snobs going, Def Leppard's not heavy metal. And I hate to inform them, but yes, at one time, they were considered heavy metal. They were considered contemporaries of bands like Iron Maiden, of bands like Saxon, bands like Diamond Head, Tigers of Pantang, Judas Priest. You listen to those first two Def Leppard albums. They are very heavy. And yes, how heavy metal was defined at the time, they were considered it. Now when you hear it, you know, it's got more of a Zeppelin-ish type feel to it. It's definitely British, but you know, Rat was considered metal. Motley Crue was considered metal. Now, of course, we wouldn't consider them metal now. But as it was defined back then, they certainly were. And they're an amazing band. We're going to talk today about their evolution from coming from Sheffield, releasing their debut album, and now becoming the huge band that they are now, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band that they are now. And again, that band is Def Leppard. I know you're a big fan, Never. Chris. I know you're, you know, I, you're probably one of the biggest Def Leppard fans that I know. When did you become a fan of Def Leppard? So, yes, I've been a 
ardent, ardent Def Leppard fan and have for oh, 35, 36 years now and have strong opinions, as we'll probably talk about throughout this episode, about their evolution and how they started in the, the new wave of British heavy metal and how they fit into that and where they went from that. I've been a fan since uh, I can remember the exact, almost the exact day I became a fan. Um, it was in the summer of 1985, actually. And, you know, I was a teenager growing up in the 80s. You know, it was that early part of the 80s. I had just gotten into music and, you know, pop and rock, but I listened to a lot of, you know, stuff like um, Survivor and Super Tramp and Journey. And then the pop stuff with Mr. Mister and Michael Jackson, obviously, and the Hollow Notes and all those guys. So I didn't really get into hard rock. Um, I never really was a heavy metal guy, per se, but I didn't really get into hard rock um, until a little bit later. And part of it was due just to the the town I grew up in, which uh, was a smaller town in Northern Ontario in Canada. And we didn't have access to a lot of what, you would call back then hard rock and heavy metal. We didn't have a station that played that stuff. Um, Much music in Canada had just launched in 1984, but it was a pay channel at that point. So my family didn't get it. We didn't have MTV in Canada. Um, I had access really to this genre that Def Leppard would fit into back then through kind of buying, you know, circus hit trader and, and, and publications like that. So Def Leppard, was put on my radar in that summer of 1985 by a friend of mine who had an older brother. And my friend gave me this mixtape that his older brother had made of hard rock and metal bands, most of which on this tape I had never heard of. Um, but there was stuff like Maiden on there, I remember. And there was this, this song called Photograph by this band called Def Leppard. And I put the tape in, played it, and that opening riff of Photograph kicked in and I was like, it was like a whole new world that opened to me, Jay. You know, what is this? What is this amazing riff I'm hearing? And, you know, as I listened to the song for the first time, you know, the the big harmonies and the, the vocals and the drums and the killer guitars, like that was almost for me instantaneous in terms of, I knew I was going to love this band and whatever other music they had put out at that point. I didn't even know at that that point when I I was first listening to the song, you know, how long they'd been around or even how old they were, et cetera. But that was my introduction was that song photograph. And that obviously led me to, you know, pyromania um, was my immediate kind of, I need to figure out where the songs come from. But Def Leppard at that point, it was also interesting because in 1985, Def Leppard, you know, was kind of off the radar because of, um, you know, some various things that obviously happened with Rick um, and his accident they had had. They had an album that was being worked on that they had to put on the shelf, which eventually would become hysteria, et cetera. So they were kind of in limbo at that point. So there wasn't even a lot of you know, media about them at the time. You couldn't find out much of what was going on because the internet obviously didn't exist. So it was kind of like I was left to my own devices to figure out who this band was and how I could get my hands on more of their material. Um, So that was it for me. It was photographs and I was off to the races running from there. 
They're an interesting band because they started out in the late 70s, basically, like I said, as teens. The original lineup went through some changes before they settled on Rick Allen on drums, who was only 15 at the time. Joe Elliott was 19 or 20. You had Steve Clark and Pete Willis on guitar and Rick Savage on bass. And they released the Def Leppard EP in, I think it was 78 or 79. And that led to them getting a deal uh, for the for the album On Through the Night, which was part of that new wave of British heavy metal movement. And if you listen to that album, you know, it's got Rock Brigade on the album. And that was really the probably the most identifiable song on that. But that was really the birth of this band out of Sheffield, which started out as basically a straight ahead rock band that had other influences and those influences would come through as time went on. But you have to remember, and I know a lot of rock bands like to keep their favorite bands in a certain box. They don't like them to venture out of those four corners, but these guys were young and you're still developing your tastes at that age. You know, you haven't really settled in on what your favorite music is or what your favorite part of rock music is. That's still developing with them at that young age, but nevertheless, it kept growing and kept growing and the band became more refined over the, over time. But that album on through the night is regarded by a lot of Def Leppard fans as their best album. And even their next album high and dry is considered their best album by a lot of fans. What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. You know, that, it's a really interesting conversation to have with Def Leppard fans about what their best albums are. And I've had this conversation so many times with so many different people who go back to just what you're saying, that, you know, those first two albums are by far their best. Nothing they did after that came close to even touching those. And what drives me nuts the most is when I talk to the fans who are in that camp that kind of get, like you said, tied into the box of, you know, that's what at the time Def Leppard was really good at and excelled at were those first two just straight ahead hard rock albums. And everything after that was overproduced or too commercial, etc. And I have a really hard time with fans that go back and say that it's fine if those are your two favorite Def Leppard albums. That's great. I mean, everyone has their own taste, and I would never begrudge anyone and, or you know bash them for saying those are your two favorites of it in, in any genre or band of music you like. But to say those are their best um, albums to me is intriguing because even when you hear the band talk about On Through the Night and high and dry, you know, it's, it's interesting to get their perspective because on through the night, they've almost basically disowned in terms of, they don't play any of that material live. They did do a little bit when they did the, the dead flatbird, um, opening thing for their, their Vegas, um, show when they did hysteria in, in full, but they do not really even discuss on through the night in terms of, I don't think it really is what you would call a, if we know Def Leppard now and they're looking at their entire body of work, it's not a Def Leppard album. It's 
an album that young teenagers made um, who were very driven, very hungry, you know, obviously were wanting to make an impression, who, who worked with the producer, who let them kind of record an album in three weeks. He captured it, the energy, the vibe, the live sound of it. He wanted to get that on the record, which he did a beautiful job of. But there's a lot of things about that album that, to me, don't, doesn't even come close to being their best. Like Joe, in my opinion, you know, in terms of his vocals on that, they're very thin. Um, he, he's not at the top of his game because he hadn't yet developed and reached that point where he would later, and we'll talk about it, when Mutt Lang came on board and really taught Joe a lot of how to sing. And then you get to High and Dry, which to me is a great album. Um but again, is not anywhere near their best, in my opinion, because they hadn't yet figured out exactly who they wanted to be. High and Dry is, and I've said this to many people and I get in arguments, High and Dry to me is a great album that ACDC never made. If you know what I mean, it's a, it's a Death Leopard ACDC album. It's, it's great. The riffs are great. The songs are great. But again, it wasn't Death Leopard yet figuring out who they were and becoming what they would be, which they were on that path. And that was their first album with Mutt. And they were starting to get that kind of vibe going of where they were going to go. And you talk about Pete Willis a bit, you know, um, those first two albums with Pete had a very, he had a lot of influence, I think, in terms of the sound of the band. He was a bit more of the metal guy, you know, he liked Priest and that was his kind of style of playing. And I think, that didn't fit with where the rest of the guys wanted to go with the music as a whole. And I, you know, Pete had some problems and, he, you know, he had some, some drinking issues, et cetera. And that was kind of what led to his ouster. But I think he would have been gone eventually anyways, because Joe and the other guys had a vision of, you know, we want to be the biggest band in the world. And I think being kind of their initial blueprint of ACDC with queen sounding harmonies, was working for them, but wasn't going to take them all the way to being the biggest band in the world. So it was interesting when, when Pete kind of found his way out of the band and was replaced by Phil Collin, who had more of a, a glam background and lended more to the sound of what they were going to do in the future. And also, you know, where they were going to go with MTV, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the evolution of the band um, as we get into it, which obviously was huge. So the, those first two records, I'll be quite honest, but I don't really listen to On Through the Night very much anymore. There's a couple standouts on there, but it's not an album of Def Leppard that I'll go back to and put on and listen to the whole thing. There's a couple things that are, you know, Wasted Good, um, you know, Rock Brigade, you mentioned, Hello America, which <laughs> kind of, got them in trouble with the British press and was part of the beginning of them being, you know, your sellouts to America and high and dry. I do listen to fair, a fair bit, but to me, they're at the bottom of the overall Def Leppard catalog in terms of if you're ranking them from best to worst. I like the album. I, I, I don't know if I consider it their best. What I like about it and appreciate about it is the rawness of the album and a lot of bands yeah. coming out of the UK during that time really did have a raw sound. Def Leppard's was a little bit more refined, but it was still raw. 
And it still had that innocence as these young kids from Sheffield, early 20s, late teens, making a record. That's the remarkable thing about it is how young they were and how good the album is. One of the deep cuts on there, Sorrow is a Woman, is one of my favorite songs. It's a very underrated Def Leppard song. But they got in trouble with the other track, Hello America, as you just touched on. When they played Reading Festival, I believe in 1980 or 81, they were not well received by the UK crowd because they felt that they were trying to appeal to American audiences. And that was a big no-no back then. Um, It would cause a lot of controversy. It even caused Def Leppard to distance themselves from the new wave of British heavy metal movement. They didn't want to be associated with that movement because they felt, and a lot of what they felt is true, those bands were really limited. They didn't really have the musicianship that they had. I mean, obviously there's Iron Maiden, great musicians. Obviously there was Diamond Head, great musicians. You know, there were bands, Saxon, you know, Tigers of Pantang, you know, they were bands that had good musicians in it, but a lot of it was one and the same. I love that era. I've done episodes on the new wave of British heavy metal. There is something appealing about that simplicity and that, you know, the, the birth of, you know, I wouldn't say the birth, but the next phase, the toddler phase of heavy metal, if you will. And they were certainly a part of it. And high and dry as they moved forward, you know, everyone talks about Mutt Lang. It's funny when, when, when people disparage Def Leppard, and they always blame Mutt Lang for pyromania. Oh, <laughs> Mutt Lang changed the sound. What they don't realize is Mutt Lang also produced High and Dry, that album that they say is their best. So he produced right. both albums and actually, you know, more, but those two albums that do get compared. And you could start to see the evolution of Def Leppard. You could start to see elements of a more mature sound, bringing on the heartbreak. Could fit very well on Pyromania. It could, I mean, it would fit seamlessly on that album because you could start to see, you know, more harmonizing, more, you know, focus on vocals and more focus on arrangements. Um, this, the, you know, these young kids were growing up. You know, Let It Go is one of my favorite songs by. Def Leppard, High and Dry, Saturday Night, incredible tune, incredible song. There's so many songs on that album. It began to intrigue you, right? It began to, um, you began to take notice um, to Def Leppard with High and Dry. Uh, You know, another Hit and Run, which is another great tune. Uh, Lady Strange, Mirror, Mirror is a great song. No, No, No is a great song. I mean, the album is packed with songs that could fit on Pyromania. And Pyromania was their big album. That was the one that really gave them a footprint in America, made them get noticed. And of course, like you just said, with the rise in MTV music television, they were the perfect band to marry with that platform. Yeah, they... They were, I think, probably the first hard rock band, right? That really took advantage of MTV and were able to market themselves 
to a whole new audience via video. You know, and those, you know, as you said, they're young guys, they're good looking guys. They knew what they wanted to do and where they wanted to go. You've got a great new medium that's really launching bands like Def Leppard and many others into the homes of, you know, at that point, you know, Midwest USA, you know, the suburbs where kids and myself later on um, up in Canada with much music didn't have access to that kind of music. And then you've got this being beamed into your televisions and Def Leppard were, I think, genius in terms of using the medium to market the songs from Pyromania and to really get melodic hard rock slash, you know, I I hate to call them at this point heavy metal because they're not, but to get that into the living rooms of America just accelerated their evolution and their, their commercial success, you know, a hundredfold. And um, I didn't see the videos for Pyromania until, um, you know, again, a little bit later, but those, those videos were a ton of fun. They were well-made. They showcased the band's obviously good looks and talent. And you could, you could see that this, these guys were going to be a band that were going to go places and were going to be launched into superstardom, which they were um, on Pyromania. And it's interesting. You said, you know, a lot of those songs from uh, high and dry could have fit on Pyromania. There's actually stuff that, you know, was written around the high and dry period that was used bits and pieces um, for songs in the Pyromania sessions as well. It was, I think it was Rock of Ages. Um, it's on the, it's, uh, it was a song called Medicine Man originally. And it's on the, the box set that came out last year called The Early Years. But again, that was written during the kind of high and dry period and were tweaked and made, you know, bigger, better, and with technology um, updated to, that would, they could then fit it onto an album like Pyromania, which sonically, I think, um, changed the landscape for hard rock uh, in the early 80s, right? That, that, that album just kind of was a game changer in terms of how hard rock albums were going to be made for many years to come up into hysteria, which again, changed the game at that point as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I know people want to call Def Leppard a hair band, right? Because that's what you do with bands from that period. But I never considered them a hair band. I never considered them a band that was more focused on their looks than they were with the music. Um, Well, when you think about it too, Jay, like, you know, the hair, the hair band thing and the hair metal thing, when that really hit, you know, especially in LA and the Sunset Strip where that kind of evolved and then exploded from, you know, in the mid eighties, Def Leppard wasn't even kind of in the game at that point. Right. Cause they were, they had, they were off the road. Pyromania had been out and then the hair metal thing exploded with your rats and your crews and poison came along in 86, et cetera. And Def Leppard, was off spending four years making hysteria in a windmill in Holland, for God's sake. But yeah, I've never, ever considered them um, a hair metal band. I hate that term to begin with, but 
I've never put them in that category because just the fact they had long hair, I guess they got lumped in with it in just the time period, but you're, you're absolutely right. They're not a hair metal band. They're, they never have been. Right. And I don't think they were ones that started that movement either. I mean, there's nothing no. on any of those videos that has hair tees that has, you know, anything like that. I mean, I mean, you may think the, the music is a little bit more radio friendly, which it is. And they'll even tell you that pyromania was, especially with photograph rock of ages and fooling and even rock of ages and fooling. I mean, if you look back, compare it to photograph, they're not as radio friendly as photograph, but they followed that big song and pyromania also fell victim. Another album that fell victim, another hard rock album victim to Michael Jackson's Thriller. We've talked about 1984 with Van Halen, and Def Leppard's album would have been number one had it not been for Thriller, because that album is so huge. And yes, there are bands out there like Rat, and there are bands out there like Motley Crue and Scorpions and all that, but at that time, Def Leppard was the biggest. I would say Def Leppard and Van Halen were probably the two biggest bands from 83 into 85. Agreed. They Wait. ruled the landscape of hard rock music. And you also start you started to see the beginnings of their British glam rock influence. You know, we talk about Sweet and we talk about T Rex and you talk about Slade and you talk about, you know, bands that were coming out in or in the seventies that Def Leppard has said that that was the direction that they were going. And I talked about at the beginning of the episode about how their youth played a part in that. You can't be that young and expect to be playing the same music 15 years later, 20 years later, whatever the case is, 10 years later, because you still have an appetite for all things music. And as they were releasing songs in the first two albums, the first three albums really, was ACDC Led Zeppelin, you started to see the peek behind the curtain with their glam British glam influences, um, you know, especially with photograph, you know, where you hear the chorus, that's a huge British glam, a huge sweet influence on that chorus for photograph and their trajectory, their popularity was just growing and it wouldn't stop. Just, I mean, remember how everyone had the British flag t-shirts in America? Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, in Canada, you're <laughs> we in Canada. definitely did too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did too, though. We did too. That was one of the first things I ran out and bought when I became a fan was I got to find the, I got to find the shirt that Joe was wearing in the photograph video. Just an amazing time for that band. And then tragedy struck. Um, after they got off tour in 1984 or 85, Four. yeah, 84, uh, Rick Allen was involved in a horrible car accident that caused him to lose his arm. Um, and the band was on hiatus for four years as a result of that. Um, well, it took four years for them to release the follow-up to Pyromania, but one of the things that I admire about Def Leppard is they don't leave any of their dudes behind. And for them to make a conscious choice to say Rick is still our drummer. Rick Allen is still our drummer. That's huge yep. 
because there's not a lot of bands that would have done that. Absolutely not. No, I don't think I don't I don't think there is. If you ask any, really any band, you know, who's a band at the top of their game, all of a sudden has their drummer lose his arm, and I think most bands would be like, "Well, we need to replace him, right? He can't continue." Mm-hmm. But they left they left it up to him to decide. Like, we're not going to kick you out. You're you are in this band. It's going to be up to you to decide whether you want to stay or whether you want to leave. And that's exactly what they did. And it's one of the things I admire most about them as well. And I think a massive part of why they are still together today and doing what they love together after what, 44 years is because they are a band of brothers, right? And, you know, tragedy has, we could do a whole episode just on the, the tragedies and curses of Def Leppard throughout the years. And they stuck through it all the way through, through thick and thin, no matter what's happened. Um, I think one of the one of the greatest things, just a little sidebar on that, was Joe at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, his speech saying, you know, if car crashes, cancer, and uh, alcoholism, and you know, the death of Steve Clark couldn't kill us. The eighty or the nineties had no fucking chance. <laughs> Which I was just like, brilliant. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you nailed it, Joe. Yeah, because we didn't talk about, you know, Phil Collin replacing Pete Willis. And, you know, they've always talked about Pete Willis' drinking problem. And I know some fans are like, they roll their eyes and be like, oh, the whole band was drinking. Yes. The whole band yeah. was a, was a you know, living, breathing circus, oh, living, sure. breathing party. What I've heard in interviews and what I've, you know, read is that Pete wasn't only, didn't only have an alcohol problem, but what came with that alcohol abuse was anger. He was an angry drunk. And for those that are not familiar with what being around an angry, angry drunk is like, it's miserable. It's horrible because, you know, you don't know from one moment to the next, how that person's going to react. And there may have been situations where it put the band in a bad spot. Maybe somebody at the record company, maybe somebody, a promoter, who knows, right? But there had to be a point where Pete's one of the original members of the band. And, you know, they have to look at each other and say, if he doesn't leave, the band eventually is going to fall apart. Because, you know, or we're going to get, you know, blacklisted because of his behavior. So they had to make a change. And Phil Collin was in a band called Girl which again was another band part of the new wave of British heavy metal. The singer is or was Phil Lewis, who we all know is part of the LA guns, the real LA guns. And you know, that land was open for kiss. I believe on the unmasked tour, I want to say, or maybe the creatures of the night tour. One of the tours that they did, um, they also have a really killer version of, do you love me? which Kiss also covers on the Destroyer album. So Phil comes in from Girl and gives the band a little bit more of a poppy sense because Girl, if you listen to their music, really does have that direct influence from that 70s British glam influence. I mean, you really hear the T-Rex. You really hear the Slade, the Sweet, all those bands that were coming out, which then, again, transferred into Def Leppard. 
and maybe he was the catalyst for them discovering those influences. But I don't know if they would have been that band had Phil Collin not been the replacement for Pete Willis. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they would have. Uh, I don't think they would have uh, had Pete stayed in the band any further past where they were going. Now, Pete did write a lot of the material on on Pyromania, right? Like Phil didn't actually write with the band until um, Hysteria, the Hysteria sessions. Uh, obviously, Mutt was very heavily involved in the writing on Pyromania as well. But uh, Pete had, as I said earlier, definitely a bit more of a um, background and feel for the metal side of things, which, you know, Def Leppard, again, never set out to be a heavy metal band. And I know we've talked about it already that, you know, they want to distance themselves from that. They wanted to be a, like their idols, like the Queens and Mock the Hoopals and Bowie, etc. They wanted to be that rock band with great vocals and harmonies. And I really think had Pete Willis not been completely knackered and smashed trying to play the day that he was in the studio and Mutt kicked him out because he was so drunk he couldn't play and that was the end of the Pete Willis era, I and had Phil not joined them, I think, I don't even know, would they have even lasted as a band, as a band at that point with that much kind of toxicity um, in the interworkings of the band with Pete being there. So Phil, as you said, definitely brought that, um, you know, seventies glam background with the material he liked. He's also a great singer too, right? So where Def Leppard was going with, they already had the big harmonies, but where they were going to go from pyromania into hysteria and what they wanted to do, I think Phil fit much better with, you know, his playing style, his vocal abilities, and, you know, as we get in later to when Viv joins, that's one of the big reasons Vivian Campbell is in Def Leppard. It's because he's a damn good singer. Um, you know, Viv will tell, be the first one to tell you, you know, the, the guitar parts that he plays, he's in Def Leppard because he loves singing in Def Leppard and it's freaking hard. So I think with Phil, they set the groundwork for where they were going to eventually end up as the band Def Leppard that we know them today and where they were going to go with Hysteria. Getting back to the tragedy with Rick Allen, you know, it was a moment for the band that they really had to decide what they were going to become. And they brought in engineers to try to come up with technology that would allow Rick to play and still be a formidable drummer. And that in itself was difficult. He had to relearn how to play the drums. And again, the band's patience says so much about them that, hey, this is one of our guys. He's going to get it. He's going to figure it out. So he does. He does figure it out. He does. He's able to continue with the band. And I know Rick touched on a lot of, in in a recent interview that I did with him, about the depression, about the PTSD. Imagine being Rick Allen. And having this tragedy, having this happen to you, your bandmates say you're still in the band. And he's still dealing with, you know, losing his arm. I mean, that's a that's a big deal. I mean, that's a that's a huge thing. He's dealing with that. And let's face it, in nineteen eighty four, you don't have the awareness 
that we do now with mental health. And I know Rick and his wife are very involved in that. Primarily because of that reason, because of what he went through. And he talked candidly about depression and PTSD. But imagine your bandmate saying that you're still in the band, you're still our drummer, having to relearn the drums, okay? And that pressure of, I don't know if he's felt this, but I mean, I'm just kind of like outside looking in. Everyone's waiting on me. That's that's a huge thing, man. That's a huge, you know, moment when you're working hard, you're trying to get it, you got the support of your bands, but you're still feeling like I gotta get going, I gotta get this going now. Like I gotta figure this out. And I don't know if you felt that, Absolutely. I'm just speculating, but that's a big, big deal that maybe not a lot of people appreciate. That whole psych psyche going through his head of having to pick up the pieces and move forward. And he's still a young guy at this point too. I think he's only oh, yeah. 22. I think he was when that happened. Um, Something like that. Yeah. So for him to come out of that and be one of the, one of the sweetest human beings you'll ever talk to. Um, but having to, you know, you know that, you know, like the band, you know, you have that natural, feeling inside, right? It's just human nature to feel like, oh my God, I'm letting these guys down. They're waiting for me and I still can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not where I want to be yet, not where I want to be. That has to go through his head. And for, again, for the band to just give him like all the support in the world is huge. It's just, yeah. it's just, it says again, it says a lot about them. So next time you want to, you know, talk about Def Leppard sucks, Def Leppard this, <laughs> remember, you know, re- remember, remember that, you know, these are, these are good dudes and your definition of good dude may be different than mine, but they could have very easily after letting go Pete Willis, an album before this, they could have said, Hey man, we love you, but we, this isn't going to work. And they never did that. No, no, they never did. It's a remarkable story, right? Like, yeah. to just, and to, to your point about, you know, having to deal with not only the fact you're losing your arm, but. You know, and, you know, the band told you that you're in, but, and everyone's kind of waiting around, but think of the pressure too of you're coming off a album like Pyromania, which, you know, launched you into superstardom, eventually sells 10 million copies in the US alone. And then you're, you're under the pressure of everyone's waiting on you to come up with a follow up album, which needs to be even bigger, right? And, you're on the clock and the, the label spent money on you. So poor Rick, I can't even fathom just the, the amount of stress that he would have been under at that point. And again, as we stated, like the fact that they stuck it out together, all five of them and soldier on, yeah, it might've taken a bit longer, but considering they were all under pressure, it's it is truly a remarkable story for sure. And then there's the story about that mini tour that they did as a warm up when they had another drummer playing alongside of Rick. Jeff Rich from Status Quo. Yeah, and as the story goes, I guess he showed up late for the one of the shows, and they went ahead with you know Rick just doing it on his own, and yep. he covered all the parts. He did it, and that kind of cemented you know the comeback or cemented him you know being in the band and that's got to be a huge moment for him too as well amazing just amazing the big album hysteria very polarizing album wasn't polarizing though back then it was a little bit 
Not as much as it is now, because people always like to revise history whenever they talk about it. But <laughs> yeah, of course, this album was gigantic, and it didn't get received very well in the beginning, though, because the first single, which was "Women," it was kind of like a disappointment, right? I mean, there was such buildup for this, and I remember watching the debut video, and it's a you know it's it's a different type of song. It's not. Like it was. It's not like your photographs. It wasn't like your Rock of Ages or Fooling. It was very different. And from what I've read, this song originally was not going to be on the album. They had to go in because the record company was afraid that it didn't have enough rock songs on it. So they had to go back in and record this and release it. And then the second single came out, which was Animal, which really brought the fans back into the fold, especially the female fans. Yeah, women, it's interesting because I remember, again, waiting for Hysteria for a very long time after, you know, discovering Def Leppard in the mid-80s and then hearing that they were in the process of recording this new album. And I rushed out to get it, saw the video too, like you did. Um, I liked women when it came out first, but it, it didn't do well. It died a death. I think it hit number 80 on the Hot 100 and it it was supposed to be a bit of a harder edge song for the U.S. audience. They went with Animal in the U.K. as the first single, which would have been a better choice. But what Hysteria did and those, you know, as the single started coming out, and Animal, as you said, especially, you know, started to really endear themselves to the female fans as well. And eventually, once we get a few singles more into it with Sugar, that's really took off with the ladies. And I think Joe has said many times, like, you know what? I look out in the crowd and it's 60% women and the guys come to the show, but the girls come and the girls like to dance and we love it. (laughs) And it makes for a bigger crowd and a bigger audience and a bigger show. So I think they were on the right track with, you know, once they hit animal and the singles that followed, um, they were off to the races. I always get into, discussions about hysteria now especially as you said where it is a bit polarizing which to me is crazy because hysteria from the the people that i talk to that now look at it as like oh you know i don't like it or it's overproduced or it sounds it sounds so 80s it i have a huge problem with that because you've got to think about the time when this album was being made with all the new technology that was being used. You know, Def Leppard really, again, was one of the first bands to take advantage of the new technology that was being used at the time and trying literally everything on this album, right? Like you get into Rocket and the that middle bit with all the crazy stuff they were doing, the sequencing stuff, and, you know, you press a button and you get this sound. That's what the 80s were about. The 80s were about big production. They were about experimenting. They were about the new technology being used. And what came out of that period were albums like Hysteria, and there were others as as well, that, again, changed the game of how albums are being made. Everybody, after Hysteria came out, tried to make their own version of it, right? The Scorpions tried to do it with Savage Amusement. You know, everybody was trying to make the next hysteria because they wanted to get that big sonic production. So when people now say, oh, it sounds so 80s, well, yeah, it does because <laughs> that's what it was at that time. I think it's aged well. 
um, in terms of how it sounds. So I don't really get the angle that people take when they talk about it being, you know, that overproduced slick kind of record that hasn't aged very well. The comment, though, because I've heard the same thing, it sounds so 80s. What album in the 80s sounds even close to this? What album prior, what album prior to right. this album Nothing. sounds anything like this album? Like, what are you talking Nothing. about? That's just someone who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about, trying to sound like they know what the hell they're talking about. Because if you look at everything that came before this, this was completely off the grid. This was completely different. And, you know, it was a different direction for the band. And like you said, it drove other bands to follow similar to what appetite did, you know, other albums in, in that uh, decade did, you know, it was a game changer in terms of how albums are recorded and the slickness and the, and the, I mean, the production on the album is, is incredible. I mean, one of the things that the first three records I believe are all great albums in my opinion, but sonically I haven't heard the read mastered versions, but sonically at the time they were, they were okay. Right. There were, there were, there were better sounding albums in terms of just how the sound dynamic is than those, but hysteria, my God. I mean, even if you don't like a song on that, you've got to appreciate how that album sounds like it's, it's, it's perfect. Basically, it is. It really is. And I challenge anyone who might think, you know, ah, it doesn't sound that great anymore. I challenge anyone to put on some headphones and put on the record and sit down and listen to it from start to finish. And tell me after that that you don't think it was a brilliantly produced, brilliantly sounding piece of work from beginning to end. There is so much going on in there that you can pick up on when you're listening to it. And there's, and this is a huge credit to Mutt Lang, Mr. Perfectionist, right? He would, you know, sit there and make them do things over and over and over and over again, down to like playing a note multiple times. You can hear it. They, they didn't set out to make, you know, the reason why the early sessions with Jim Steinman didn't work, who they brought in, and I still don't get who made that decision in their management team to bring in Jim Steinman, who wasn't a producer, really. It didn't work because Jim Steinman wanted to, you know, catch a live vibe in the studio of the band. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to make this masterpiece of sonic perfection that every song could have been a single. They wanted to craft something painstakingly that, you know, is their work of art that you can put up on a wall and say, you know, that is a brilliant piece of art. And I think with Hysteria, they literally did that and captured that moment in the 80s of musical perfection from, you know, again, start to finish sonically, lyrically, and all the little bits in between is what they managed to get um, from those sessions and create this album. It's, it's remarkable when you think, and you go back and, and read some of the, the press and the articles and the interviews they've done since about this album and what in, went, went into it and the amount of money that was spent. Like that was unheard of back at that time. But this is what they wanted to do. They wanted to, it's been said many times, right? They, I think Joe said it. Our goal was to create the hard rock thriller. 
which every song is fantastic. You can have a single, uh, you know, seven singles from a rock album was unheard of in that era. And they did it with this album. And it's because the songs are all brilliantly written and brilliantly produced. Um, so it really, that's the one thing that really kind of grinds my gears, if you will, about when people talk about hysteria and the evolution of the band from these young guys who were, you know, rockers and just straight ahead, um, you know, ACDC vibe and their evolution to hysteria, which a lot of people then, this is their, oh, I'm out because they've gone too commercial. They wanted to be the biggest band in the world. They wanted to create this masterpiece. So why there's still that kind of discussion about this album and that people don't like it boggles my mind, Jay. <laughs> well, again, you know, you have the old school Leopard fans, you know, which are pre-hysteria that are used to a sound, that are used to doing, you're used to listening to what they were. Right. And this goes along with what we talked about in the beginning of this conversations, you know, is a lot of rock bands don't like it when their rock stars, their favorite bands evolve, you know, and get into, you know, something different, go in a different direction. And, you know, they always, it's funny because they'll complain that every album sounds the same. But then they'll also complain right. if you venture off too far. You know, it's like, it's like, what what does a rock fan want? You know, and I like it when an album when a band takes a chance. And Def Leppard did. You know, they didn't want to release a rock hard rock album. They wanted to release something with the influence, like we talked about, T Rex, Bowie, Mott the Hoople, Sweet, all those bands, and they accomplished that. Um, yes, was. Every single that they had in that album overplayed? Yes, absolutely. But you know what? When something's that good and something's that well-received, that's what happens. And I don't know if people remember how big or appreciate how big Pour Some Sugar on Me was and still is a big song. It's played at sporting events. It's played at arenas all across this country and probably in other countries too, other countries as well. You know, Hysteria, that mid-tempo ballad, which was just you know a great tune. Um, the only one that I don't think holds up well is probably my least favorite song on the album, and that's "Love Bites." I'm just not a big fan of it. Um, but the yeah, album, yeah, the album is 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 just a great great album. And really, if you want to talk about their greatness, um, because tragedy did follow them at the conclusion of. The, the tour for this album. And that was the death of Steve Clark, the guitar player. And here we are again, dealing with tragedy within the Def Leppard camp. And this was a big one because, you know, he was one of the founding members of the band. And again, alcohol reared its ugly head and um, basically died of alcoholism. Yeah, Steve, Steve's death was, I think, a big, big moment. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say a big moment. It was a key moment in the sense that there definitely was a change in where their sound was going to go. Steve, Steve was a, a master of the riff, right? And a lot of those Def Leppard songs from the early days up into Hysteria and into Adrenalize 
which he wrote, contributed uh, writing to. Steve wrote a lot of the best riffs that you'll ever hear and the, the key riffs from a lot of the Def Leppard songs. So his death was a huge loss, obviously, personally for the band members, but in terms of the musicality in the band and, you know, their where their songwriting was going to go, I think it was a huge loss. And a lot of people will say that they never really were the same in terms of the music they would write after Steve's death, that it didn't compare to the great, the songs weren't as good is what you'll hear a lot of discussion about. I tend to disagree just because I like their whole body of work. And I think they evolved again after Steve died in a different, went in a little bit of different direction. Um, and then Viv came in and, and changed things a bit more, but Steve's death was, was a huge, huge loss. And um, I think really on that Adrenalize album, I like it. It's very close to what Hysteria was, right? In terms of the sound, big production, big harmonies, big riffs. Uh, but they were almost kind of, as they were going in to record it and move on as a four-piece, like just kind of going through the motions with Adrenalize, that it doesn't stand up some feel as well as some of their previous work. And I can see where that is in certain moments, but there's a lot of great songs on that album um, that I still love to this day. But it definitely, losing him, took them in another direction and continued their evolution into, you know, another layer entirely. Yeah, I never really connected with this album like I did the previous four. Um, I think it has its moments, like you said. But this is a tough album for them to make in a lot of, of because a lot of what was happening. You have obviously, you know, the death of Steve Clark. You have the band going to a four piece, even though it really wasn't recorded as a four piece, right? Was this this? Well, it was it was recorded as a four piece. And, yeah, Phil played Steve's parts basically. Yeah, right. It, you know, it's tough for a band to kind of having to keep going through these tragedies, and I think. You really felt that on the album. It it tried to recapture the magic of Hysteria. Um, but even with that, you have to remember, Hysteria was released in 87. This album comes out five years later, which is longer than the period mm-hmm. in between Pyromania and Hysteria. And similar to what we saw in the movie The Dirt with Motley Crue in their career, when Motley Crue got off the the gigantic tour for Dr. Feelgood, the landscape of music had profoundly changed. Grunge was king. Kids weren't listening to the hooks and the, and the melodies anymore. They were listening to the angst of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and all those bands that Let's Get Rocked didn't have a place in the youth of America anymore. Um, it was a very difficult time to release an album, and this really started the the slowdown of Def Leppard's popularity. You know, I mean, obviously, it's hard to maintain that level of madness, right? That Hysteria was, and the popularity sure. that they had. I mean, no band can can sustain that forever. Um, it's just the way it goes. It's just how it works, but. They really, um, they really tried to capture 
the hysteria magic. They tried to do it as a four piece, you know, they just, and, and they just couldn't do it. Um, you know, and they also tried to do it right without as a four piece. Like you said, they also did it without Mutt Lang. Yeah. Mike Shipley produced right? this. So they, yeah. Yeah. Right. Who's a great producer, but you know, I think what they tried to do, like you said, they were trying to recreate hysteria and they were also trying to recreate, you know, Mutt's influence. I mean, Mutt wrote some of the songs on this album, but he didn't produce. So they were trying to think of things, I think, in the studio and try and be like, okay, you know, what would Mutt do in this situation? That's kind of how I feel about it. That I, I love the album, actually. And you know, one of my favorite song, Def Leppard songs is White Lightning, which was written about Steve Clark and I think is one of their best. But they were trying to, you know, figure out how to do things without Mutt. But how do we do it like Mutt would? So, you know, this album came out, I think it was the last, Probably one of the last, again, I don't want to call it hair metal. Or that, one of the last hard rock albums of that genre, of that era, that was a big, big album. Like, it went right into number one. I think it sat at number one for five, six weeks straight. Still sold something like four million copies. And then that was, though, as you said, kids were not resonating with stuff like Let's Get Rock. Def Leppard was not Nirvana. They weren't U2. They were a band who was escapism, right? I want to have a good time. And the musical landscape was starting to change and they were slowly, slowly starting to not be part of the big sit next thing that was going on, which is challenging for a band like Def Leppard, obviously. Yeah. And it really, you know, not only was you know, music changing for Def Leppard or the fan base was changing, it was changing for everybody. And, you know, as a result of that, Bands kind of went into hiding similar to what Def Leppard did in, in terms of really trying to figure out what they wanted to do. So they released a compilation album of B-sides and unreleased stuff. Then they released, you know, a greatest hits album. Um, but they didn't really know where to go. And then they come out with a new guitar player, Vivian Campbell, who, again, was part of the new wave of British heavy metal. I think he was in the band called sweet savage, um, yes. which, uh, you know, was also like Phil Collin, part of that movement. And they released the album slang, which kind of had more of a grunge feel to it. Right. I mean, I mean, if you listen to that album now, I think it sounds better now than it did when it came out. And how is that possible? You know, you ask, your ears weren't trained to hear Def Leppard in that sort of vein, in that sort of style. And you just nailed it a hundred percent. You know, listening to that is it's kind of a shock. You're like, well, this isn't Def Leppard. Def Leppard's trying to do grunge or, you know, trying to have a little bit of a, you know, darker edge to it. And yeah, they were, there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, my ears were trained to pour some sugar on me, to photograph, to bring it on the heart, break, you know, and here, you know, I'm listening to what is this, you know, this is so different. So if you go back and revisit this album, I mean, it's similar to what Motley Crue was doing too, with John Karabi. It was a whole different direction into what they were going to do. Um, but this album basically is, you know, 30 years after or 20 years after their, they formed, you know, and this is only the sixth, is it the sixth? Yeah. The sixth studio album that they did. I mean, that's, 
you know, when you look at six albums over 20 years, you know, and, and obviously you, you have those moments of tragedy in between some of those albums, you know, this is a band again, that's still evolving. And, you know, a lot of people like to say, oh, they're starting to follow the trends and they're starting to do, you know, if you listen to that album now, you don't hear grunge in that album. It's a rock album. It's a hard rock album. Yep. You really don't hear it anymore. And uh, that's what I'm saying. It, it sounds, it has matured like fine wine. It sounds a lot better than it did years ago. Yes. I will tell you a little story about slang. I was so excited for this album to come out. It had been a long time, like you said, in between Adrenalizers 92, they did a, you know, a B-Sides Retroactive and the Vault Greatest Hits. But when slang was announced, I was so excited. I ran out to the store. I bought it immediately. I took it home. I played it. I hated it. And you nailed it, Jay, when you said that your ears were trained to hear a certain, to, to hear the Death Leopard sound, right? The hysteria, pyromania, adrenalize. That's what you were expecting to hear. I listened to this album the first time and I was so disappointed. I didn't listen to it again for the longest time. I was expecting to hear, you know, something like Adrenaline, something like Hysteria, something like even stuff from Retroactive. And when I when I first heard Work It Out, I put it on, I heard Work It Out, the first single, and I was like, what the hell's going on? What? How? And then I saw the video, and I was like, what's going on? This isn't a, this is Duff Leopard. And then diving into the album more, and I listened that first listen, I just, I couldn't get over how much I was like, this is not Deaf Leopard. And I don't even think, you know, to this day, they set out to make a grunge album. I know, you know, grunge at the time was what scene was. I think they were, they listened to a lot of what was out there. They listened to some Nirvana and some Soundgarden, and they just wanted to strip back their sound. They were done with the big production of Adrenalized Hysteria, et cetera. They wanted to just go back to, let's write some songs Let's scale it back. Also, what crept in right at this point in their lives was, you know, real life had crept in. They'd had the death of a band member. You know, a couple of them got married. Somebody had a kid. So there was actually things happening in their lives that it wasn't just all about, you know, kind of that party, feel-good music anymore. They were actually getting a little bit deeper, right, with their writing. So going back now, though, and I 100% agree with you, this is one of my favorite Def Leppard albums now. I listen to it all the time, and it sounds to me nothing like grunge at all. It sounds to me like a Def Leppard album, just not the big production. You've still got big vocals. You listen to songs like um, Breathe a Sigh or Where Does Love Go When It Dies, some of these more balladish type songs. It's still got the big vocals, and it's still got the big hooks. Um, but it's just a really well done overall album that I encourage anyone to go back and take a listen to. And I guarantee you, as both you and I have said, you'll have a different opinion of it now than you did when it was released for sure. I think in the Death Leopard fandom, I think most Death Leopard fans will say that Slang ranks up there as absolutely probably their most underrated, overlooked album in their catalog for sure 
I even think that about Euphoria. Euphoria was a return to the Def Leppard sound as we know and love. Um, it was a little different. It was a lot more mature sounding than you know the albums that were released like Hysteria and Pyromania. It was basically older guys playing that music but having a different perspective. And I always thought that um, Euphoria is a very underrated album by Def Leppard. And it really was a return to that glorious sound that we all knew and loved back in the 80s and early 90s. You know, songs like Promises and Paper Sun and, you know, was it Goodbye, I think, was a great tune, too, as well. Um, just great really one, yeah. Fit. Yeah, and it was a great album, you know, and that was obviously grunge had gone away by then. Grunge only lasted about four or five years. It wasn't really um, a long, sustaining period of music. And bands like Def Leppard and bands like Motley Crue started to gain more popularity. I still remember, you know, articles or reading articles how, you know, 80s rock was becoming a nostalgia thing then. And, you know, they were starting to capitalize that. And they were still, you know, they didn't really know that someday they would be this arena touring act like they are now or stadium touring act as they are now. But, um... I think this really set in motion kind of the the slow return back to people listening to Def Leppard again. Yeah, hundred percent it did. The and the key the key there right off the bat was, you know, working with Mutt a little bit in terms of some of the, the songwriting on a couple of these tracks. Um, he didn't produce the album, but he was involved a bit and they had moved through that 90s phase, like you said, with the alternative scene, you know, having come and gone. And I think it was just a time that they felt like, you know what, this is who we are, right? We're, we tried the slang thing, we got it out of our system in terms of, you know, it was what we needed to do at that time, but it wasn't really, yes, it was Death Leopard, but it wasn't really who they were. And Euphoria returned them, especially with Promises, that first single, which is so hook laden and, you know, it's got the big vocals and it's got the big production and it's got the, you know, just everything that you would, you know, think about when you think about a Def Leppard song. And that song, you know, process could have easily, you know, you could throw that on Adrenalize, you could throw it on Hysteria. Um, and I think it did bring them back to what would, what people would say is their classic Def Leppard sound. It was the album they had to make at that time, I think with, like you said, that kind of resurgence of we've moved through the boy band, alternative grunge era, and there was some of that 80s feel coming back. And guys like me, who by this point, you know, I was, uh, geez, I was approaching how old I'd be, I'd be almost 30 at this point. <laughs> and I was, you know, reliving some of my nostalgia from the late 80s and wanting to hear that classic Def Leppard sound again. It's a fun, fun album. It's really good. It is. And I, you know, I, I think for me, um, I think it was the last great album of Def Leppard in terms of just each song. Um, I know X came out and then songs from the Sparkle Lounge and then they had the, you know, the self-titled album Def Leppard. And those all have moments. Um, but Euphoria, I think, really was, you know, song for song, pound for pound their last great album. Cause I think it's better than adrenalize. 
I think it's better than slang. Although I think slang, like I said, sounds better today than it did when it was released. But Euphoria, you could easily slip that in after Hysteria, and it would be accepted yeah. as like the next album. Yeah, easily, no doubt. Yeah, I, I would probably agree with you um, in terms of the overall album itself being their last truly, you call it truly great album. They they did do some. I really enjoy some of the, I guess you can call it the 2000s Def Leppard, right? Where they had X and Yeah and Sparkle Lounge. There's great moments from each of those, like you said. X by far being my least favorite album that to this day, <laughs> I'm not really sure what they were thinking. They were trying to do Def Leppard as a boy band, I think, and they brought in outside writers, which a lot of bands did. At that, you know, Aerosmith did it, and other bands, hard rock bands did it. It didn't work for Def Leppard, I don't think, on that album. But stuff from from Sparkle Lounge is great. Um, the two, the 2015 album, I really, really, really like, and it's one that I tell anyone who hasn't listened to a Def Leppard. That's their last full length original album of original songs but that's an album i tell people who haven't listened to any you know quote newer Def leopard check out the self-titled album because again you could drop a number of songs from that album on hysteria or adrenalize like let's go and dangerous especially um that fit really well with what you would consider classic Def leopard um and i even enjoy um you know the yeah album in the 2000 i think it was 2006 when they did yeah the covers album um where they hearken back to like we've talked about this whole episode you know who their influences and their idols were and they took kind of deeper album cuts from guys like bowie and uh, elo and alice cooper etc and crafted a really brilliant covers album out of songs of bands that really kind of made them who they are today so that's another one that's a lot of fun but that whole kind of taking it through the 2000s and evolving into what they are today is a really interesting kind of part of their story just because they're there's so many classic rock bands or legacy bands right that and we talk about this um you know amongst ourselves on twitter with a lot of those bands are out there touring as nostalgia acts only, right? There's no new music. Def Leppard, yeah, they might take some time between releasing new music, but they're still interested in, in putting new stuff out and they're, they're working on a new album now, right? So I like the fact that they cater to their audience in terms of, you know, they want to hear the hits. At, the, at a Def Leppard concert, you want to go and you want to hear the hits with a couple new songs sprinkled in. And those new songs are really great. And I think it's what, has given them a lot of staying power because they've had that long career with all those hits, but they're still putting out new music, which is relevant. I think more so now than ever before in terms of this genre. You know, when you think of Def Leppard and you think of the contemporaries that they were around or surrounded by during their popularity, during the height of their popularity, you think of the Van Halens and you think of Motley Crue you think of Bon Jovi. And those were really the four big bands that are still big today out of that era. You know, I mean, Scorpions, you know, have a very limited fan base now. Somewhat. You know, and, you know, they, they, you know, but my point is those four bands kept evolving. 
you know, when you look at Van Halen from Van Halen 1 to 5150 to Balance, you know, there's a band that you know it's Van Halen but kept evolving. When you look at Bon Jovi yep. from their self-titled debut to Slippery One Wet to New Jersey and Crossroads, no, not Crossroads, Keep the Faith, into These Days, into Crush, you know, a band that kept evolving. Motley Crue, say what you want about the crew, from Too Fast for Love to Shout Out the Devil, Theater of Pain, Girls, 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 Dr. Feelgood, all different albums. Same thing with Def Leppard, all different. Bands that were not afraid to take chances, and that's why they're still popular today. You know, because not everyone is like ACDC. You know, there are bands that, you know, can release the same stuff that maybe didn't get, you know, that, that, that you still sound great. ACDC is probably the only band that can do that. But they were, those are four bands that had very well written songs, great stage presence, and also part of pop culture. You know, um, you know, Bon Jovi, you know, you, you think what sporting event don't you hear a Bon Jovi song? Motley Crue with the with the movie The Dirt, Van Halen. I mean, come on. Pop culture and Van Halen are like intertwined. You know, Def Leppard, another one, you know, that has a lot of pop culture references and moments and songs and commercials. Those were the four big bands from that era. There are a lot of great bands underneath them, but Def Leppard you know, was a band that stood the test of time that wasn't afraid to change and evolve. And, you know, their career and their music is, I mean, look at it. I mean, you can't argue with that. I mean, it may not be your taste in music and you may call them a boy band. Like some people I see on Twitter do, but you know, (laughs) great musicians, great, great, you know, great band. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what else there is to say. Yeah, they've got the staying power, right? But I and I think one of the key things and the four bands you mentioned all have in common too along their evolution is and one thing I really like is that they have all had at various points missteps, right? Like oh what you would what fans or what people might consider, you know, what were they thinking there on that one? You know, the crew had it for sure, Van Halen when they you know, they replaced Sammy was a big one. Later on when uh um extreme what's his name it's blank uh gary sharon came in mm-hmm. um you know all these bands through bon jovi putting out albums that you know what the heck is that a country album bon jovi just put out? but to our point their evolution they've kept evolving year after year after year album after album they've tried these things they've not stayed like you said acdc is the only one i can think of that can put out the same album every time and people love it they haven't stayed, um, they haven't gotten stale. They've done new things to, you know, move their, their music forward while continuing to provide great, great performances. All these bands are fantastic to see live. Def Leppard especially, one thing I noticed, Jay, um, I've seen them, probably the band, other than, other than probably Lee Aaron, Def Leppard's probably the band I've seen the most. So I'm going to say probably 15 times. And one thing that I've noticed recently when I've seen their, their shows, most recent was uh, two years ago, just before the pandemic, was the crowd at a Def Leppard show is absolutely amazing. You've got, you know, guys that are 10 to 15 years older than me that are the high and dry on through the night lovers that are there 
hoping to get, oh, hopefully they're going to play Let It Go for me, which they never do, but, <laughs> but they're there. Then you've got my era and our era who grew up with them in the 80s. But it's amazing when you see, and there's a huge number of them, of bands there with their kids. Like the show I was at, there must have been from ages 6 to 66. And I had a chat with a guy in front of me at the show who was there with his 13-year-old daughter. And the joy on their faces, and dad especially so proud that his daughter's wearing the Death Leopard shirt. And I'm asking her, like, what do you like about this band? And she was like, they just have great songs. And this is a 13-year-old. So, you know, to have a 44-year career where you've evolved through so many different challenges and musical eras and had the staying power where you've still got, you know, the show I was at, 25,000 people who want to hear your music of every age. It's really remarkable. And I think it says a lot about, you know, what they put into their craft and who they are as people and, you know, the kind of music they play. People still say, and we talk about it all the time, right, that this, like, rock is dead. No, it is not. There's a lot of great new bands, but there's bands like Def Leppard who continue to put out new music, play their classic hits, and I think there will always be an audience for it. Absolutely. And that is a great way to end the conversation uh, about Def Leppard, about the evolution of Def Leppard from 1977 all the way to present day. Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, platinum albums. God, I think, what, Hysteria is five times or six times platinum? Um, just uh, ten, ten times ten platinum. Times, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, they, they're a little, little trivia. They're the only one of the, there are five bands that have sold 10 million copies of two albums. I think it's, uh, well, Pink Floyd's one and Zeppelin. Def Leppard is up there with Pyromania Stereo selling 10 million. Crazy, eh? That is crazy. One of the biggest bands in rock history, one of the biggest bands of the 80s, um, and that's, that's not a bad thing. Because the 80s had a great, it was a great decade for music. A band that is a band of brothers, quite literally, with them supporting Rick Allen after his accident, moving forward with another British you know, guitar player after they kicked out Pete Willis and Phil Collin, and also Vivian Campbell after Steve Clark died. It's a band that has a lot of warts on them. They've got a lot, they've been, they've got a lot of scars in terms of just their history, but it's a band that defines perseverance. It's a band that is a soundtrack to many, many people's lives and deservingly. So, um, and that is the great legendary band, Def Leppard. I'd like to thank Chris Preston for joining us today. Thanks again for doing this, man. Always a great time whenever you come on the show. Thank you, Jay. It was a blast. Uh, I always enjoy being here. I appreciate you asking me back, and I'm sure we will do it again, but uh, always a pleasure talking rock and roll with you. Thanks again. Yeah, absolutely, man. we got to think of another topic to discuss because I always like these conversations with you. So thanks again to Chris Preston. You can tr- check him out on Twitter at Rock These Tweets. You can find him on the Boom Radio platform at My Rock and Roll Heaven. And I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong, keep rocking. 
Go out to a show. Enjoy yourself once again. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.